What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I have a very awesome guest. It is Daniel Crosby, and he's written quite a few books that I love, uh, but today we're going to be talking specifically about his books, The Laws of Wealth, as well as The Behavioral Investor. All right, but before I kind of introduce the conversation and everything, if you're new, make sure you are following or subscribe to the podcast. I try to read like as many nonfiction books as possible because I love to learn and love to have authors on here to talk about the different topics and everything like that. So if you're into that, make sure you're following. And for all of you wonderful people who are already following, first off, Thank you. Uh, for those of you who follow me on social media, which you should be at the Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter, we just celebrated a year. It has been one year of this podcast. We have like over 160 episodes. So yeah, for all you new folks, plenty, plenty in the back catalog for you to check out. All right. But yeah, so Dale Crosby, uh, last year, I was 35 years old and I'm like, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to learn uh, how to invest, <laughs> you know? Um, and I realized that, you know, not only did I not know anything, I knew that uh, a bunch of my friends and people I knew, they weren't familiar or they were afraid of investing and all this other stuff. So I went out and I grabbed as many books as possible and tried to read. And I came across uh, Daniel Crosby's book, uh, The Behavioral Investor. And then I think I went back and read his previous book, The Laws of Wealth. But anyways, as somebody who's into psychology, uh, you know, Daniel, he talks about behavioral finance, right? So we all think that we're like rational. We make these rational decisions, right? Like our species, we are homo economicus, but as we all hopefully know by now, we can get very irrational and that's where behavioral finance comes in and why I'm so glad to have Daniel on here because we don't always make the best decisions, especially when it comes to investing. So for me personally, learning about all this stuff, it made me feel more comfortable with investing. So if you're, if you're a fan of like Daniel Kahneman's work or just, you know, books and the psychology of like decision-making and the thinking errors that we make and all these different biases, like this is a great place to start with Daniel Crosby's book. So I am so glad that he came on to chat with me about it. So we talk about, you know, uh, investing, common mistakes, uh, you know, different aspects of, you know, the, the market and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, make sure you head down in the description, make sure you're following Daniel over on Twitter and make sure you check out his books. I've linked uh, two of my favorites down below. Uh, the Behavioral Investor, and Laws of Wealth, all right? But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Daniel Crosby about, yeah, both of those books, The Behavioral Investor and The Laws of Wealth. All right. Hello, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm awesome. How are you, man? I am fantastic. So as you know, uh, your books uh, were some of the first I read when I first started investing in all that. But for those in the audience who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you give us a little bit of your background and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, I'm Daniel Crosby. I'm the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. And 
if that sounds like a goofy made up title, then well, <laughs> there's not too many of us. So basically what I do is I'm a psychologist by education. I have a PhD in psychology, but, but it's in clinical psychology. Mm. Uh, but what I've done is I've applied that study of, of mind and behavior uh, to the financial markets. So my work and my research and my writing uh, sits at the intersection of sort of money, mind, and meaning. Uh, and I try and just help people make better decisions with money, uh, help them uh, incorporate money into their lives in a way that'll make their their lives better and happier and more meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's one of the reasons I love the book because I've always been a psychology guy, like my whole life. My mom's a clinical psychologist as well and all that. And when I first started investing, I'm like, there's gotta be, you know, some psychology behind this. So you talk about behavioral finance. So like, can you kind of break down for like what, what that is? And is it, is it something that a lot of people are familiar with? Cause I'm always like, when I'm, when I'm reading things or even watching like people making their predictions and stuff, I'm often curious. I'm like, are you aware of this whole like realm <laughs> that's going on? So can you, can you kind of like break down what it is and what your, your research is all about? Right. Like, are are you aware that, that this is impossible, what you're trying to do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so behavioral finance is simply, you know, sort of my colloquial definition of it is just finance that accounts for the messiness of human behavior. So if you, if you look at sort of the history of econometrics, some of the, some of the historical models that economists use were predicated on this idea that people are perfectly rational and that people maximize utility. So people consistently make decisions that are in their own self-interest. And we know from, you know, we know from our lived experience and our observation of others and ourselves that this isn't always the case and that people are, are uh, prone to a host of sort of quirks uh, irrationalities and, and, and just sort of twists in their thinking when it comes to money. And, you know, in the behavioral investor, I actually, uh, cited some research that looked at the excitatory power that money has on our behavior. So you can look at brain scans of people who are, you know, um, looking at stuff that, you know, about, about drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. or sex or rock and roll, or like, you know, any of these things that, that sort of have excitatory power and thinking about money has more excitatory power than, you know, death or mm. drugs or sex or any of it. So we're goofy generally, but we're sort of especially goofy about money. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it seems like when, when we look around, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. When we look at other people, as we look around the world, we have no problem looking and saying, you know what? People are irrational. We're constantly judging people that we see when we hear things in the news, when we see our friends, our family, we're like, what the hell are you thinking? Why did you do that? But when it comes to us, there's like this attribution bias, right? We're like, we're like, no, no, you know, I'm perfectly rational and all that. So from your experience, especially, you know, working with so many people and coaching them and like giving them advice and stuff, do you see like, like, what is it? Is it, is it ego? Is it, you know, what is it that blocks people from just taking a step back and saying, Hey, maybe I'm not fully making the, the best decisions because I'm sure you've worked with people who have just kept making the same mistakes 
over and over and over it again. So, so what's one of the main blocks that we got to kind of look for? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple of things that that contribute to, you know, this bias blindness that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the unconscious or just, you know, sort of behaviors or ideas or thoughts that are not fully within our own awareness, you know, why do these things, why do we remain blind to our own quirks when we when we see others so readily? You know, uh, the first thing is exactly what you talked about, you know, what what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error, right? Mm -hmm. So we're aware of all our uh, aware of all our internal processing. So if I'm if I'm driving in traffic and I get cut off and I flip someone off, then I go, whoa, you know, the reason I did that, I'm not a bad person. I'm not an mm -hmm. aggressive person. I'm not a mean person. The reason that I did that is because I haven't had my coffee this morning or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I yeah. have some sort of situational reasons that I let myself off the hook for. Uh, if someone does that to us, we're not aware of what their morning looked like. And so all we see is that behavior and we go, well, hey, Chris is a jerk. Like that's, just, yeah. you know, that's just what he's like. And that's who he is at his core. So we're more. Uh, we tend to give ourselves a pass and uh, we're so acutely aware of our own situations uh, that we kind of give ourselves a situational pass, whereas we look at other people and attribute their quirks uh, more to sort of their their soul, right? You know, their, mm -hmm. their personality or their core. The other thing, Chris, is that we, we really want to streamline, <laughs> we really want to streamline our existence. Mm. If I become aware of a negative tendency I have, like if I become aware of, of uh, sort of something I do that's whatever, like irrational, mean-spirited, suboptimal, whatever sort of negative thing, I've got two things I can do with that information. Uh, there's it, it elicits a sort of cognitive dissonance. And mm. at that point, I've either got to talk myself out of it, you know, talk myself out of it being a problem, or I've got to behave differently. Mm. Well, given those two options, which is easier, right? I mean, it's yeah. much easier to kind of fool ourselves and just say, oh, no, this is okay, or excuse the behavior or write it off. Uh, than it is to go, wow, Daniel, you're kind of rotten. Like you need, you know, you need to do better. Yeah. That's a lot of work. And we want to streamline our existence candidly and keep Ooh. watching our shows and eating our TV dinners. And yeah. so, you know, we kind of keep it simple and lie to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so so one of the main reasons, uh, you know, I wanted to have you on and I'm getting back into just learning about, you know, investing and all this other stuff. It's because I was not financially literate until the age of what, like 35, like last year. Right. Because I was a I was a drug addict until 27, finally, like rebuilt like my life and everything. And I was like, hey, got some extra money. I should probably do something with it. Realize like just shoving the savings account wasn't, you know, optimal and all that. So, you know, one of the things like, you know, I really want to do is help others realize like, hey, investing is probably a good decision think about your future and family and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, one of the first things that I ran into, and I'm, I'm super glad, grateful that I was into psychology and research before I started investing, because I'm a major fan of Philip Tetlock and his work, right? When I realized, hey, experts don't always know what they're talking about, but for new investors, like that's, that's what we do. Like the new average person, we go, we look, there's a lot of, you know, I was watching a lot of different YouTubers. I tried reading articles 
And I started realizing like, these, these guys are not that accurate at all. Right. And, you know, uh, I, I'm curious, like, are there certain things we should look for? Because obviously like, we can't just not take advice from anybody. So where does that balance come in with people's not so great accuracy when it comes to predicting, but also trying to take in guidance from someone who's been doing this for a while, you know? Yeah. So I think we need to draw a, a pretty bright line here between impersonal sort of aggregate prognostication, right? Mm -hmm. Of the type that Philip Tetlock studies and shows how terrible it is, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, people trying to use a crystal ball to, to forecast the, the future course of events. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of things that you might see on uh, the financial media, the financial news, and then working with a professional financial advisor or someone mm. who can can help you, can understand you, your family, your risk tolerance, your goals. So, you know, let's talk about some of Tetlock's work and, and some associated work. So David, you know, David Dreeman, uh, famous value investor, did research around um, Wall Street analysts, predictions of future stock movements, and found that they were within 5% uh, one time in 170. So he looked at, you know, 70,000 different consensus Wall Street estimates and found that they were, you know, right about half a percent of the time. Ooh. So brutal, right? Like these are the smartest people in the room. I mean, these are Ivy League educated, highly compensated people. And they can predict where a stock's headed, uh, you know, le less than 1% of the time, well, well under 1% of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, Tetlock talked about how poor people are at forecasting eco uh, economic forecasts, political forecasts. We've seen that, you know, with the election of Trump in 2016, something that basically no one saw coming. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of forecasting is uh, useless. And yet we know that it, that it scratches a very particular itch we have in our brains uh, because we know that our brains account for about two to 3% of our body weight, uh, but they're enormously calorically expensive. They, they spend about 20, 25% of our metabolic expenditure for a day. And so anytime we can listen to someone else's advice, right? Mm -hmm. It takes a cognitive load off. Um, so if, you know, nine out of 10 dentists choose Crest, then like, sure, whatever. You, yes, great. I choose Crest, right? That's just one less thing to think about. Yeah. And the same thing with, with financial forecasts. The research around people who work with a financial advisor shows that they tend to do really well uh, relative to folks who don't work with an advisor, even net of fees, not because the advisor knows the future, right? Like financial advisors don't know what's going to happen or don't know the next hot stock more than you or I, but they just keep us out of our own way. Yeah. So uh, is working with a professional advisable in most cases? Yes, I think it is. Uh, is listening to quote unquote professionals on the financial news talk about, you know, the, the future trajectory of markets and politics? It's useless. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, that transitions into, you know, what I wanted to discuss with you about, uh, in the different types of investing. So, uh, personally, like when I started reading all these books and everything like that, I got into just S and P 500 index investing. So 
for those listening who are new to this or trying to learn. So this is basically, and correct me because I'm terrible at explaining this. <laughs> it is basically, uh, you know, a group of stocks rather than just picking one. And it, it kind of goes based on, you know, their ups and downs and, you know, from what I learned was that over a long period of time, if I'm not trying to cash out soon, you know, there's an average of what, like 11, 12% on average, like per year, something like that. Um, and it feels like that's the safest bet for someone who is worried about losing all their money and everybody who's, you know, I was one of those people like, oh, invest in such a gamble and all these other things. But you discuss in your book, Laws of Wealth, how this does come with its own risk or it may not be the best strategy. So can you kind of discuss that or maybe explain S&P 500 <laughs> index investing a little bit better than I did? Yeah, so index investing in its, in its simplest form is just buying the entire market with respect to its size. So it's what's called market cap weighted. So a larger company, so like an Apple, which is worth whatever, trillion, trillions now, mm -hmm. right? So a company like Amazon or Apple is going to have a larger place in that portfolio uh, than, than a smaller company. You know, Jim Bob's truck shop, whatever mm -hmm. is in the S&P 500 yeah. is going to be smaller. So in general, something like the S&P 500 is you know, 500 of the largest, uh, you know, most well-known, most respected companies in the U.S. Now, there's also index investing outside of the U.S. And so one of the things that uh, I think one of the rookie mistakes that, that investors make, and I think is especially uh, grave right now, is that they fail to invest <clears throat> outside of their home country. So mm -hmm. if you look at, uh, it's called home country bias or home bias. We tend to confuse things that we know with things that are safe or good. Mm -hmm. So um, people in the South and the Midwest, where there's a strong ag agricultural industry, tend to be overweight ag stocks. People in the Northeast tend to be overweight financial stocks. People on the West Coast tend to be overweight tech stocks. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of dangerous because if you think about someone like me who lives in Atlanta, like I don't want to put all my money in UPS, Aflac, Coke, and sort of other local companies mm -hmm. because, you know, the my, my home price is also sort of, uh, my, my, my home price is also sort of contingent on the fortunes of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So index investing uh, is not, there's, there's many different flavors of it. You can do equal weight, you can do factor weighted, you can do all these different mm -hmm. things. And there's fights about, you know, what is an index and what is not, but, but broadly speaking, index investing is passive, low cost, low turnover, highly diversified investing. And that's why it works. Mm -hmm. So you know, you, you sent me an email asking me to kind of put a, a finer point on it. And I'm critical in my book, The Laws of Wealth. I'm critical. Well, I'm critical of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> like I, you know, I'm, I'm critical of, uh, of sort of passive investing and active investing. Mm -hmm. So if you look at passive investing, it has to be said that passive investing or index investing, like you're talking about, is the right answer 
for 99% of people, right? Mm. This is the way to do it for, for almost everyone because it's just set it and forget it investing. And the reason that it works is primarily because it's well diversified and it's low cost. So Morningstar, the big fund family did, um, and tech provider did uh, a study a few years ago when they looked at the number one predictor of a fund's performance and the number one predictor was its cost. And so anything that you're paying in fees for a mutual fund or an mm -hmm. ETF, that is of course going to right off the top cut into your performance. Yeah. So uh, all else being equal, a low fee investment vehicle is the way to go. And index funds uh, typically have, have very low fees. Ooh. Now, where I'm get critical is sometimes people think index funds are good uh, for, for their own sake. And what I say in the book is, it's not that index funds are sort of this wholly anointed way to invest. They work because they're well diversified, they're rules-based, they're low fee, and they're low turnover. And I believe there's a way to achieve all those things in a different way, um, but you gotta do a little work. And mm -hmm. honestly, for most people, it's not even worth discussing because they don't even, they don't want to do the work. Like it's hard yeah. enough. They got kids, they got a family, they got a life, they got things they want to do. So index investing for 99% for of the investing public, a globally diversified low cost index portfolio is going to be the right thing. Yeah. And, you know, here's, here's one of the the, one of the reasons why I, I do like reading it and seeing some of the, you know, criticisms of index investing, because I think a lot of people are in a similar boat to me, right? Where I grew up, like my, my parents weren't financially literate. That's why I wasn't right. Just terrible credit. Uh, never really like purchased their own home or anything like that. Like it just wasn't on the table for me. So I didn't get into this until I was 35 years old. So when I started reading these books and, you know, realizing how much it's going to cost to retire, how much I should have in a, you know, in a, a retirement account by now, I'm like, I have some catching up to do. So, so even though index investing is great, it takes some time. So, uh, give me one second. I'm going to tell you a quick story. All right. So, so I started reading all these books on like, you know, fundamental analysis and technical analysis and all these things. And as you probably know, a lot of people think they have the magic formula. So there was, there's two stories that stick out in my mind. The first one is the Coinbase IPO. When that popped off last year, I saw so many people hyping it saying, here's what it's going to start at. Here's its potential. I saw people losing their mind like, oh my God, this is so undervaluated for what this company's worth. They're going through like their profits and all these numbers that I'm still trying to learn. But I was watching people who were spending hours and hours and hours and they're like, this is what this is going to do. And I'm like, well, I guess it makes sense based on the numbers. And basically, uh, I can't remember what it, it reached its high of, I think a little over $400 per share that day. I ended up buying in when it plummeted down to $333. And I think right now without it pulled up, I think it's less than $200, right? But I'm like, how did so many people who do this every day, go through all this number, spend all this time, get this so wrong? And then the other story that comes to mind is, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, I, I believe his name is Philip Town. Um, he, uh, he has his own formula and he has like a website and everything like that. But 
uh, since then, what I've started doing is going through and when I see people who recommend a stock or they, they, you know, tell a story, I go through their history to see how accurate they've been. And I found some that he was really excited about where like the company went bankrupt and people lost a lot of money and stuff. So that's where my hesitancy is, right? So I'm in a position where I need to catch up. So it would be extremely valuable to me and anybody who wants to make money to find one of those good stocks. And it almost seems like there's an illusion that we can look at like, you know, the PE ratios and stuff like that and know where it's going. And uh, you talk about value investing. So maybe we can talk about that in a minute too. But anyways, anyways, that's where my hesitancy is when it comes to taking some of my money and moving it away from index funds, because I'm like, I don't think anybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah. So you're, you, the examples you gave are great. So one of the, the themes in, in all of my writing is trying to get people, uh, to think probabilistically. Mm. So one of the reasons why individual stocks hold such a lure for people is because we as humans are very bad at thinking probabilistically and we're very good at thinking in terms of an N of one or sort of a particular narrative. So there's all these companies that you could point to and you say, look, if you had invested in Amazon when it IPO, yeah. you know, if you had whatever, put $10,000 in Apple or Nike or Amazon, like what would it be worth now? So the narrative is such that we go, oh, wow, if I could just pick the next whatever, Amazon, Nike, Apple, then I would be rich. And then that is of course true. But if we look probabilistically about mm-hmm. the returns of any given stock, about three quarters of stocks go to zero. I mean, the, yeah. the, if just from a, just from a, like a raw probability standpoint, when you invest in an individual stock, the outcome you should expect is losing all your money. Right. So that's, (laughs) and then, and then there's some small subset, the, the top decile or so the top five or 10% have ridiculous gains that account for all of the success of the market. Mm. So, you know, you talked about the market over long periods of time over us history, the, the broad market. So something like the S and P has averaged about 10% a year. Mm-hmm. We've been on a tear over the past few years. It's been better than that. But of course, there's, you know, there's decades where it goes nowhere too. Um, so if you think that the average market return is somewhere around 10% over long periods of time, just a handful of stocks are doing all that lifting. Mm. The Apples and Amazons of the world are doing all that heavy lifting and most stocks are dead weight. And that's why you have to... That's why you have to think probabilistically and that's why you have to diversify, you know, because we're prone to all these biases. We're prone to this narrative bias. We're prone to recency bias, right? You know, we see, oh, this stock's been hot. We think it's going to continue to be hot forever. Well, that's not how it works. And then the other thing you have to remember, Chris, even if you pick Amazon, Right. I mean, maybe the greatest business success of all time. Uh-huh. Amazon lost 90% of its value. Right. So if you bought a hundred dollars worth of Amazon stock, Amazon stock, your Amazon stock would have gone to ten dollars. Mm. And you know, uh, during the tech bubble. And now if it would be, of course be worth many, many multiples of that. 
But you have to ask yourself, do I believe enough in this stock that I can take a 90% hit and still stick with it over the long term? And the answer is no. For, yeah. for just about anyone is going to not take a 90% hit on a stock and go, you know what? I'm sticking with this. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a perfect transition into one of the, one of the uh, thinking errors that I'm always worried about, which is the sunk cost fallacy. So another example I'll give you is, uh, you know, a lot of people, when I, when I first started investing, so just to give you an idea, it was around February of last year. All right. So Tesla had just like gone insane months prior. So along with Tesla, the name Kathy Wood kept coming up. I'm like, who's this lady? Right. And uh, since then, um, ARC ETF, right. So they have a group of like, you know, with that specific one, it's a lot, a lot of tech uh, with, uh, um, yeah, ARC Innovative, whatever. Like they have like three or four, something like that. Anyways, anyways, it's been going pretty badly since then, right? And what you hear from people like Kathy Wood or even like the pundits is, you know, kind of like what you were talking about, like, you know, Amazon took that, you know, that drop during the tech bubble. And then now it's like insane. But the, the issue I'm worried about is the sunk cost fallacy, because when's it time to just cut our losses? Because you can easily say like, oh, no, no, this is just a minor thing. Oh, hey. You got to look 10 years from now. You got to look 20 years from now. Like, uh, you know, with Tesla, right? Like, oh, everybody's going to get rid of gas and we got the infrastructure bill and all these other things. Like, it's easy to do that. But as we were discussing, like, it's hard to predict the future, where things are going to go, what's going to change, especially with technology, because somebody comes in and just totally disrupts, you know, everything. So when I look at it and, like, and, and I get it, like, do you believe in this company? And, you know, uh, Warren Buffett uh, uh, or is it Charlie Munger? They talk about the moat. Right. Is there anything protecting this business? Right. Like, what is it? But yeah. So my fear is the sunk cost fallacy. So Coinbase, like, oh, I'll use that as another example. Um, they, they, they're still like the main people in the crypto space who are public. Now, crypto as a whole has a big going well or, you know, whatever. But looking at these stocks, it's like, okay, but when do I just stop? When do I say this, you know, I, I'm going to take a 50% loss and not go down to zero. You know what I mean? How do you, or what do you recommend to people to avoid uh, just dumping thing, more money into something that's not going to perform? Because some people say, oh, buy the dip. You know what I mean? It's like, well, what if it's going to crash? So what are your thoughts? So this is, a, you know, this is, I think, exhibit B, perhaps, for why index investing is so powerful. Um, if you had an index fund portfolio that was broadly representative of the world market. So right now, the U.S. is probably 55% of the world market. The rest of the world's the other 45. So if you had a, a, an index fund allocation that was broadly representative of the world market, I think you can say, look, I'm just going to contribute every month, especially if you have a long-term horizon, right? So someone like mm -hmm. me, who's like 20 plus years off from retirement, I say, look, I'm going to contribute to this every month. I'm going to buy every dip, so to speak, because I'm just going to con continue to contribute, whether it's up or down. And I could say rather emphatically 
that that will be up when I need it to be up, right? 20 mm. years from now, there's never been there's never been a period in history where that portfolio wasn't up 20 years from now when I need it if you have that long-term profile. When you come to any individual stock or even a concentrated a concentrated bet on something like technology. I can't talk about individual, I can't talk about individual funds or individual people or my yeah. clients will kill me. But <laughs> you know, uh, if you talk about a concentrated bet on an individual company or even an individual sector, there's no, um, there's nothing that says that has to be up. When you're mm. betting on a globally diversified uh, portfolio, that is low cost and globally diversified. Look, there's one of two things is going to happen. Either that portfolio is up 20 years from now or else we have much bigger problems. And currency is like cigarettes and guns. Like yeah. if you you know, if if that portfolio is not up 20 years from now, like you have bigger problems than your portfolio. Mm. But that's not true when you take individual bets. So for me, I'm betting on the triumph of commerce and the human spirit long-term. That's a bet I'll take all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, any individual company, never. Like you can't, you can't have any sort of surety. So I think for the average listener, um, you want to bet broadly on human innovation and human progress. But for any individual company, it's literally anyone's guess whether yeah. it's going to be up 10x or down 100%, you know, 10 years from now. So mm. I, I don't think you have any assurance there that any individual company is going to stick around. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, uh, uh, so one of, the, one of the things in your book you talk about is, is the five Ps of stock selection. The first one is price. And when I first started learning about this and you know uh you know how much how much should this stock be worth right because there's ones like that's what leads to bubbles if i'm thinking of this right like they're way overvalued for what they are and so going back to you know me watching these people say oh i've looked at all the you know all the numbers and everything and you know this is how much it should be worth so this is a hell of a deal but you know, another example, um, I, I started learning about, you know, earnings calls, right? <laughs> like, it's crazy to me. I didn't know, like, you know, these major companies did uh, quarterly earnings calls and you just go to their website and you can listen to them and all these other things. But there were certain individual stocks that I had um, where, like, I was like, okay, cool, earnings calls, I would listen to them. And thus, they blew away all projections, right? Just like they met, like... Uh, I, I believe it was Tesla, right? They had like expected amount of like deliveries and they just boom, shot past it. And there were, you know, some other companies too. And then I'm like, yeah, this next day it's going to skyrocket and nothing happened, right? I'm like, wait, isn't this company like worth more? <laughs> That's all sweet to stuff. So, so when you're talking about the five P's of stock selection and you recommend some great books that are on my list, like I think uh, one of them's, what is it? Quantitative value maybe? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to check those out, but I, I don't know. I, I remember one time I spent like, I'm not even kidding, like eight to 10 hours, which isn't much for people who do this professionally, but like just studying how these numbers work and everything. And then I was like, I still, I still don't know how much this stock quote unquote should be, you know, right. because of course I'm going to buy something at a discount because that, that kind of, uh, balances the risk I'm taking on an individual stock. But it seems like 
I don't know. I just haven't found a formula to tell me how much a stock should be worth. So can you break that down a little bit? Yeah. So there's um, the overarching rule here is that um, even a great company or a great market uh, can be a bad buy at the wrong price. I mean, think think about anything, right? Like I'm a baseball card collector. Like, mm. would I like a, a a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie, a Bo Jackson rookie? Like, yes, I would. Would I like it for 50 bucks? Yeah. Would I like it for 50,000? No. Like, you yeah. know, I mean, there's there's a an appropriate price to pay for for everything. Now, what is tricky <laughs> is of course that price discovery is happening at all times. And that price discovery, Chris, is both, uh, there, there's an element of the known and the unknown in that, right? There's a lot of times these earnings calls that you talk about, perhaps a company had a great, uh, you know, a, a great quarter. And they say, hey, look, we did great. Like we, we met and exceeded all of, our, uh, all of our goals. And yet you'll see the company drop sometimes dramatically, the stock yeah. drop dramatically on forward guidance because they might say something like, hey, this last quarter was great, but next quarter is going to be tough because of COVID or because of inflation or, you know, a hundred other things. And so the price of every index, the price of every individual stock is a combination of both the known and the unknown. And in a very literal sense, the market price of a security reflects the best thinking of millions and millions of people all over the world. Mm. And that is hard to beat. So yeah. in order to, um, you know, in order to uh, make a profit on an individual stock, you have to know something about a stock that millions and millions of other people don't know, or else you have to be more courageous or more stupid or something, right? <laughs> And, and so that's, that's tricky to do. And that's again, why index investing is such a good idea and why dollar cost averaging, which is just a fancy way of saying, putting a little money in every month mm -hmm. and takes all the guesswork out of it. So in general, cheaper stocks tend to do better, uh, because, uh, of something called the value effect, which is basically like, yeah, if you get it on sale, it tends to do better. But that tends to be true in aggregate and not true of any individual stock in particular. Mm. You know, a lot of people will learn about something like a PE ratio, like a price to earnings ratio yeah. and go, okay, well, over long periods of time, you know, let's say the average PE of a, of a company is 16 or 17. You go, oh, look, you know, uh, Daniel's lemonade stand is trading for, for a 10 PE. What a great deal because it's, you know, it's half price. Well, Remember, uh, everything that's known about that company is baked into that price. So the reason it's 10 may be a very good reason. So okay. in general, paying a, a good price for, for an index or an individual stock, uh, it, you know, it, it can have some upside. But I think trying to figure out when the price is right and when the price is wrong uh, is something that most people should uh, ignore and most <laughs> people should not try and guess about and they should again just index broadly and contribute a little every month 
Yeah, yeah. Something, uh, you know, going back to, you know, dollar cost averaging, that's, you know, that's something I learned about. Um, and in your book, you talk about like decision fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for a while, um, I I just set it up to just buy some S&P 500 index. <laughs> it's like, although, like whenever I had a check, a little bit went in, got some more, everything like that. Um, so, so when, when do you think, I don't know, like, when is a good time to sit down and do some research? Like if somebody said, you know, if I said, Hey, I want to sit down and find some individual stocks. Like, you know, I, I've had some advice of, Hey, companies that, you know, that you follow, you know, that's probably your safest bet. If you're, if you're actively using this product and they're, you know, publicly traded, you know, check it out. And maybe that's something that, you know, you want to do, but I guess the question is how, how closely should I be monitoring all that stuff? Like earnings calls and news about them and everything. Cause when I log into my brokerage account and I click on a stock, it's just like, here's every little move they made or what the CEO said or didn't say and all these other things. But I don't want to be victim of that, like decision fatigue and, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? Or just automate my process and go on with my life, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a couple of decision points here. Like one decision point is, is this stuff fun for you? Mm. Right. Like for me, it's fun. Like I, I enjoy this stuff. And then the second decision tree is, are you okay losing all this money? (laughs) (laughs) You know, the, the way that I sort of do it personally is I have somewhere between 95 to 97% of my money in boring highly diversified, you know, uh, index funds and and other similar vehicles with that last three to 5%. Yeah. Like I'll play around a little bit. I'll monitor it. I'll listen to the earnings call. I'll play with it. But I know that again, thinking probabilistically, the most likely outcome for me is that it's not going to do well. And you have to treat it a bit like gambling. And so I think it, for the average person, this is not fun. Like, you know, you and I are kind of weird perhaps in this respect that we mm-hmm. like any of this stuff. For the average person, it's not fun. And so they shouldn't worry about it at all. Because I think there's this real, there's this Wall Street trope that you should buy what you know. And I think it's really dangerous mm. because the fact that the fact that I like to eat burritos, which is true, like, <laughs> as you know, has nothing to do with how good a Chipotle investor I am. You know, the fact that I like Air Maxes tells me nothing about the fortunes of Nike. And I think that there can be this idea that because we have some sort of affinity or even involvement with a company or an industry that we have some sort of insider knowledge and that's just simply not the case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how much I like to burrito or some Air Maxes is very different than the fortunes of that company. So for the average person, just forget about it entirely yeah. and keep it, keep it simple and diversified. If you love this stuff, carve out a tiny portion of your investable wealth to, to do this for just to basically scratch that itch and keep you away from your real money. That's, that's why I do it. It's a behavioral yeah. hack to keep me from blowing up my real money is I'm going to do it. It's like a cheat day. Like it's like a cheat day on a diet. (laughs) You know, it's like, look, I'm going to do this a little bit. So I don't do it a lot. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, you know, I live in Las Vegas, so that, that makes sense. Like, you know, I, when friends come to town or, you know, whatever, I'm like, Hey, 
only bring to the casino what you don't mind losing, you know? (laughs) And and yeah, like personally, even though I started playing around with individual stocks, like the majority was in there because that makes, that makes sense to me, you know, but it still, still bothers me when I lose money. But (laughs) (laughs) so, so that's the other thing. So like, like you were saying, this stuff is boring to a majority of people. Um, It's also complicated, scary, and something I'm really passionate about is I want people to get into this because a lot of the people I know, like if I looked at my immediate group of friends, like none of them, none of them invest, right? (laughs) You know, so I'm not alone. So it's boring, it can be scary. But earlier you were talking about financial advisors, but then there are these places who you give your money to and they invest and then they take fees and then sometimes they take additional fees if things perform better and all that but anyways in your book and many other books i've read is that you know uh some of the best places they just have like one good year then they get all the publicity people go run to them they're like oh they have like 18 percent gains this year right and then a lot of people run to them while they have jacked up prices and all these other things so uh what I guess, you know, something I've been curious about too, is what's the difference between a financial advisor and then me just saying, I don't know what to do with this. This company looks like they get good returns and, you know, whatever. So is it worth paying the fees? Cause I'm sure that's what they sell you on, right? Well, Hey, if I'm making you X amount of dollars, my fees are nothing compared to all the profits you're going to make. But based on what we know over, you know, long-term, they're not as accurate as we're made to believe. So do we work with a financial advisor or hand our money to one of these places? Should we just take a week of our time to learn about some stuff? I don't know. Yeah, so it's it's a great question. And I think one that many people wrestle with. So I think what we have to get right first is the best use of a financial advisor. Mm. Because for most people in their minds, I'm giving my money to this professional, they're going to have some sort of inside track on what the next hot stock is or what the next best performing asset class is. And they're going to put me sort of upstream of that. And I'm going to do very well by dent of high returns. Mm -hmm. That is not the case with, with almost any financial advisor. You know, we've talked about the, the perils of forecasting, what a financial advisor is going to do well is they're going to allocate your money in a sensible way. They're going to give you a financial plan and goals that you can stick with, and they're going to coach you along the way so you don't blow yourself up, okay? 80% of the world needs that, okay? Most people need that. 10% of the world are like degenerate gamblers and they're never going to listen You know, they're never going to listen to a financial advisor anyway. And then 10% of the world can take a month of their time, read a bunch of books about how to invest, stick it in a self-directed account, and just never touch it and be that disciplined. These are the same people that get up at five o'clock and work out for two hours every day and haven't had a dessert in a decade. And, you know, there's, there's a certain very small cohort of people who can do it themselves and manage their own behavior. For most people, you need to work with a professional, uh, both because they're going to allocate your money in a sensible way, and also because they're going to keep you out of your, you know, from, from tripping over yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the research shows really consistently that people who work with a financial advisor 
tend to g gain significant benefit from that just because if left to their own devices, their behavior is going to run afoul. And again, dude, there's, there's what you think you're going to do. Yeah. There's like, you know, there's reading a book about a 25% drawdown. Yeah. And then there's watching your hundred thousand dollars become $75,000 and the, the pain that, that ensues from that. And it's very, very different things. Yeah. And so people think they have more willpower and more stick to than they actually do. So for the, for the vast majority of people working with a professional is going to be the right thing to do. Yeah. So let, let me ask you this and I'll, I'll create a fictional scenario. So in, in this world, in, in this world, I'm going to make up, uh, Daniel, you and I have been friends for years, right? I'm like, Hey, I'm going to start investing and everything. And I've read my book. So basically I'm just me. Right. And I'm like, I'm going to start investing like, and like how, cause my thing is, I'm like, why, why would I pay somebody? Why would I take some of this money, give it to a financial advisor instead of just taking that and shoving it into the S and P 500, right? Like, you know, because I'm like that money could be used for this. And it, it seems like the same, just, I don't have to think about it. And it's just in there, you know, because it's something that I've been on the fence about. So, you know, not giving me financial advice or anybody else, but it's like, I'm just like, why don't I just shove my money in there instead of paying somebody, you know, hundreds or even over a thousand dollars to say, oh, you want to retire at this age and you have this job? Cool. Thanks. Here, you know, give me the money and, and we're good. Like, you know, uh, uh, unless my, for example, unless my taxes are very complicated, like I'm not going to pay someone like hundreds of dollars to do it for me because that could be used for something else. So how is there a selling, is there a way to sell me on that aspect or I don't, I don't know. Yeah, so there's there's two things there's two things you need right the first is the know-how to create that that uh, appropriate asset allocation and almost no one's appropriate asset allocation is the s p 500 mm, right if you okay. think about if you think about the s p 500 let's say the year is 2000 you start investing in the year 2000 things have been great for years well over the next decade the S&P 500 goes down. <laughs> so if you, if you bought, if, if you invested your money in, you know, in January 1, 2000, you'd be looking, uh, you know, 10 years later, that money would be worth less than when you started. Mm. And so it takes a Herculean amount of willpower for the average person to go, yeah, this is, this is fine. Like I'm going to continue, you know, I'm going to just continue to get punched in the face by this market, even though it's done nothing but hurt me for 10 years. So first of all, the financial advisor is going to have you hopefully allocated uh, across a broad swath of assets that are actually going to have you positive over that 10 years, right? So, you know, the U.S. market was down for that 10 years. But people in a globally, in a hypothetical globally diversified portfolio were up, you know, about 7%. If you were equal weight between Europe, Asia, you know, developed Europe, mm. de developed Asia and the U.S. over that 10-year period, you were up about 7%. So first of all, it's like, can you put together a, a, a coherent asset allocation is the first question you have to ask yourself. The second and much more difficult question is, are you actually going to stick with it? Yeah. And it's just, 
incredibly hard for the average person. There are people who can do it. Uh, but unfortunately, some of the people who are most confident that they can do it are so overconfident <laughs> that they don't see their their own their own shortcomings. So those are the two boxes you have to tick. There's a mm -hmm. there's sort of a practical knowledge blocking and tackling box, but then there's also a willpower, stick-to-itiveness, behavioral box that's just much harder to to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm, if I'm being uh, completely honest with you and my audience, I'm definitely not the person with that stick to itiveness because like I said, I started last February, things have gone mm. really bad since then. Yeah. Then, sep then September, I got just out of nowhere laid off from my job. You know, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. working again. That's why I'm getting back into all this stuff. So there were, there were some, uh, some not so great decisions I made during that time. So sure. I am going to reread your, uh, your section because you do give some great advice about how to find a, a decent financial advisor, you know, and a fiduciary or, you know, and all these other tips you have. So everybody needs to go check out the book. But um, one of the one of the last things I wanted to ask you, though, is, like I said, things have been not so great in the markets for a while, which which also confuses me. And we don't have time to get into because I'm like, oh, hey, COVID started to like chill out and everything. And then all the stuff in Russia had to happen. But I'm like, oh, the markets are going to go boom. And it even when things just started to reopen and you can go to like places it, it wasn't doing well but anyways things aren't so great uh like i said there are a lot of just average people who are not doing this they don't understand the importance you know they're either shoving their money in a savings account which isn't the best option for everybody and there are others who aren't saving or investing at all so i guess like uh again if, if this was one of your friends like what is your pitch to you know take some money set it aside like i'm like if i was to say hey Daniel, I'm making $40,000 a year, you mm -hmm. know, I, I don't have a ton, you know, like, Hey, I, I, I'm debt free. Right. But I, I don't know if I have the extra money to put in. So, but I want to get people to start doing this. So what, what is your, your pitch on that? Yeah. So I, you know, at, at Orion, we have a, 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 a tech framework called protect live dream. It mm. actually really corresponds to the way that most people think about their money. So one of the things that we've found is that people often benefit from sort of, you know, some people would call it an emergency fund, call it a sleep well at night fund, a safety fund, whatever. That's the protect piece. So that's going to look different for different people. Some mm -hmm. people want three months of sort of protection. Some people want two years of protection, right? So they can say, look, if the market really, really tanks, could I live off this money for two years? And maybe that's what it takes to buy you that protection. That's, you, you know, your mileage may vary, but that, that's one piece you have to address. And so for someone making $40,000 a year, just starting investing, they may not even have that sort of bucket filled, right? So that's like, Dang. start there. You know, get that, get that short-term comfort that's going to buy you that psychological peace of mind to live through the market because the market routinely drops 30 to 50%. It does. Yeah. And like, if you can't handle that kind of volatility, you're not ready yet. So that middle piece is live, right? Inflation numbers came out yesterday. Uh, CPI's eight and a half percent. PPI came out today. It's 11%. Like, yikes. You know, mm -hmm. your money that is sitting in cash is getting lit on fire <laughs> at a, you know, 
at a, at a rate of eight to 10% a year, eight to 11% a year currently, right? So a portion of your money, once you have that safety, that, that sort of rainy day fund covered, a portion of your money needs to be invested in a broadly diversified way that, that keeps up with inflation, you know, that mm -hmm. aims to keep up with inflation. And that's going to be stuff like stocks, real estate, fixed income bonds, you know, different, different asset classes that, you know, a, a professional can help you get it to a place where it can uh, shoot to keep up with inflation. And then we all dream big, right? Like we all, we all want to reach for that, that golden ring. We all want the, whatever the, the financial dream is. So for the, the average person is going to want to take a, a small portion of their assets and try and hit it big. Ooh. You know, that might be starting a small business. That might be a side hustle. That may be individual uh, uh, investing in a couple of individual stocks that you believe in. But I think that's sort of a good framework for people. A portion of your wealth, you know, for for just like rainy day, cover the bases. A portion of your wealth, the 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 majority of your wealth, invested in a, in a diversified way that's going to keep up with inflation, and then a small portion of your wealth, sort of chasing chasing a dream. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully people are listening because man, I, it always blows my mind. Like it took me so long, but when I realized how widespread that is. So, so yeah, hope, hopefully people grab your book and check out your work because this stuff is, it's important, especially like you said, with inflation, all that stuff. So, so Daniel, thank you so much for coming on for everybody who just fell in love with everything you had to say and realized that you're a smart guy who knows what he's talking mm -hmm. about. Where can they find you? And do you have another book coming out anytime soon? Tell me about it. No, no, I yeah. definitely don't. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, I wrote three books in five years, and I'm just like still catching my breath from those. So uh, nothing, nothing to look forward to there. But uh, the best book for the the average starting out investor is The Laws of Wealth. Yeah. So The Laws of Wealth is where I'd recommend you begin with with my work. Uh, the Behavioral Investor, if you're interested, after that sort of next level thinking. And then I have a podcast too called Standard Deviations, where Ooh. I talk about, you know, the psychology of money uh, every week. So that's the other place I'd go. Beautiful. And best social media to find you and keep up to date, Twitter. Is that where you're most active? Yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn. So at, at Daniel Crosby on Twitter and Daniel Crosby PhD on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Well, Daniel, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel. I, I know I did uh, because, yeah, something I learned early on when I was trying to figure all this stuff out was like index investing. That is, you know, the safest bet, you know, uh, for me, it helps me with my anxiety. I'm not running around trying to learn about all these different companies and make these different decisions and all these all these other things. So yeah, when I read in his book, I was like, I was like, wait, what? You're telling me like this isn't a bad, uh, a good idea. So I'm glad I was able to sit down and chat with him about it and uh, un understand the nuances a little bit more. But yeah, if you're if you're new, if you're not investing, um, you know, I've I've had plenty of criticisms about you know capitalism and all that other kind of stuff. But as I've mentioned in previous uh, previous episodes, like with uh, Nick Majuli, you know, like it's part of our system, right? So I, I would rather, you know, play the game than not 
You know, I have a future. I got a kid to feed. I'm trying to teach him about all this stuff. So, so yeah, I hope if you're new to this and you haven't started investing and saving and all that kind of stuff and understanding the benefits of uh, investing versus savings, like definitely make sure you check out some of, uh, some of Daniel's books. You'll learn a lot. And especially if you're a psychology nerd like me, this will be a easy, easy kind of transition into this world and learning about investing. All right. So make sure you head down to the description. Give Daniel a follow over on Twitter. Check out his books. I've linked uh, two of them down in the description below. And before I let you go, again, if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast. I do uh, episodes weekly, sometimes a couple of weeks, depending on how many I got in the pipeline. But make sure you're following. Make sure you're subscribed, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, whatever it is. All right. And yeah. And if you're not yet, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. For a couple reasons. One of them, the main reason, is because I love chatting with all of you. I have some great conversations with all of you about a ton of different topics, what's going on, you know, in current news and politics and social issues. Uh, sometimes we even talk about new movies and stuff like that. But yeah, I love chatting with all of you. But uh, also, make sure you're following so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. I also write and everything like that. So I post everything on social media. So again, it's at The Rewired Soul on Instagram, Twitter, over on TikTok. And I need to start uploading more to YouTube again. All right. And then, yeah, if you want to help support the podcast, you can leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. That helps out a ton. And if you share this episode, that also helps to spread the word. Okay. But a few other ways that you can help support the podcast. One of them, uh, if you want, head over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. It's linked down in the description. You get all of these episodes a day early, and it's either five bucks a month or $50 for the year. Help support what I'm doing here, and you get a little bit of a benefit as well if you want to listen to the episodes early. And then there's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, aside from psychology, I am big on mental health. Uh, it's it's a huge part of my life. It's one of you know my top priorities, and I personally used BetterHelp Online Therapy. So if you're interested, uh, it's affordable. You work with a licensed therapist. It's super convenient as well. So check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy, all right? So another huge, huge thanks to Daniel for taking the time to come on. We've been trying to link up for a while now. So make sure you follow him, grab a copy of one or both or all of his books, all right? And yeah, for all of you, uh, I will have another episode for you this week uh in the next couple of days i believe all right so make sure that you stay tuned but until then have an amazing rest of your day and i will see you next time